The scripture reading this morning comes from Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the, and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in the battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Ed. If you're joining us for the first time, we're in the middle of an Advent series called Expecting the Unexpected. And throughout this series, we are progressively crawling through Isaiah 9, 1 through 7. It's kind of like those specially made Advent calendars where each day you open up a door and receive a special treat. In this series, every Sunday, we're opening up a verse or two and looking at what God has to say to us. On our first Advent Sunday, we took a look at verses 1 and 2, and we explored the theme of light and darkness. We discover that Israel, in Isaiah's day, is living in deep darkness as the threat of the Assyrian Empire surrounds them, and they're eventually conquered by the Assyrians and displaced from their homes. We saw how Isaiah sees a Messiah who will one day shine the light and dispel that darkness, and that this light will come from an unexpected place. On week two, we took a look at verse three, and we see how in verse three, the, ring, the, the bells of joy ring throughout this verse. Isaiah sees a day where the Messiah will come and bring joy, great joy to his people. And that this joy spurs from the multiplication of the nation, how the Messiah will open the floodgates of heaven so that the nations might flood in, and that this Messiah will also bring sinners before the very face of God. And as they appear before God's face, instead of experiencing judgment, they experience God's joy. Today, we're gonna dive into verse four. And in this verse, we're gonna encounter a theme that is often overlooked around Christmas time. 
During Advent, we often hear about messages of light, joy, hope, and peace. We hear messages about Mary, Joseph, the shepherds, the wise men. But what we don't often hear about is the theme of freedom from oppression, liberation for the captives, justice for the persecuted. Now, some of you might be surprised that this theme of freedom from oppression is part of the Advent story. Others of you might be surprised that the theme of freedom for the oppressed is found in Scripture entirely. Why? Because the dominant narrative of our society and culture, the dominant message and ethos that we're taught in our schools and universities is that Christianity, far from being an agent against oppression, Christianity is an agent of oppression. We see this in the media, in books and movies. The dominant narrative of our culture is that Christianity is a hindrance to freedom, love, and equality. Christianity stands in the way of sexual equality, gender equality, racial equality. Anyone who believes in the Bible is dangerous, especially if you're one of those evangelicals that believe the Bible is literally true. If we truly want a progressive society, if we truly want a society where everyone is loved equally, then we need less Christianity, not more. Less of the Bible, not more. Biblical fanatics are what's wrong with our country. That's the ethos that surrounds us today. Of course, we know that just because a lot of people say something is true doesn't mean that it necessarily is true. Now, the society and culture around us come up with this narrative not in a vacuum. For good reason, they've seen the way the church has abused their power and influence in the past in marginalizing those who are minorities. And for those abuses, for those missteps, the church indeed needs to confess and repent of rather than try to defend themselves. However, it's my belief that those abuses don't stem from Scripture, don't stem from the church being too Christian, but rather not enough Christian. Not because the church has been too biblical, but because the church hasn't been biblical enough. You see, it's hard to reconcile this narrative that society has painted of the church with what you read in Scripture. Because when you read the Bible, you discover that God always aligns himself with the oppressed. He identifies himself with those who are marginalized. His people are the ones being enslaved, imprisoned, and exiled. Israel's history is birthed under slavery, under Egypt. They are the ones being persecuted by those in power. And that is where we find Israel in Isaiah chapter 9. 
And so one of the great longings and hopes traced throughout the Bible is the hope that God's people will one day be liberated from captivity. It's the hope that the the captives will be set free, that the stranglehold of power will be broken. And we see this in Isaiah 9. Let me read verse 4 again. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. Notice the threefold symbolism of oppression, the yoke, the staff, the rod. The yoke is that heavy beam laid upon an oxen, often used so that the oxen might pull something incredibly heavy. And to help the oxen move forward, the farmer would strike that oxen with a rod or staff. And Isaiah takes this common picture of agriculture and he applies it to Israel's situation saying, that's us. We're being treated like animals. We're being oppressed by those in power over us. They are using us for their advantage. Unfortunately, the history of mankind is riddled with example after example of tyranny, abuse, and oppression. Because of the fall of man, because our hearts are darkened by sin, whenever you have people in power, they more often than not use that power to promote and protect their own purposes, and welfare at the expense of others. We see oppression on an individual level. You have the classic story of the evil stepmother who uses her authority to oppress her stepdaughter and forcing her to do all the chores. You have the the selfish uh, manager who plays down the accomplishments of his direct reports, lest they get too much attention and supersede him. You have the abusive husband and father who leverages his superior physical strength in order to get his family to do his bidding. Of course, oppression occurs on a societal scale. The wealthy, the powerful, the upper class can create systems that protect their power, preserve their wealth, and promote their influence at the expense of others. Ecclesiastes chapter 5 verse 8 addresses this. It says, if you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness. Do not be amazed at the matter for the high official is watched by a higher and there are yet higher ones over them. Solomon says, don't be surprised when you see systemic oppression, systemic systems of injustice. Why? Because it's not easy to untangle that because if one person wants to do the right thing, there's someone else looking over his shoulder who will punish him and someone else looking over that person's shoulder. So long as our world is filled with people who ultimately are driven by doing what is best for themselves and for their families, 
oppression will continue to exist in our society. If you've seen Squid Games, it's all about this principle. When push comes to shove, man will ultimately do what's best for themselves at the expense of others. And so how many today groan under the weight of oppression? How many find themselves in miserable circumstances simply because they were born with the wrong skin color, born to the wrong family, born in the wrong caste system, born in the wrong brutal regime? Their lives are marked by dehumanizing servitude, child labor, sex trafficking, labor camps. Slavery did not end with the Civil War. It's estimated that over 40 million people today are trapped in modern day slavery, many of whom are children. And it's into this darkness that Isaiah shouts that the yoke, the staff, and the rod of oppression will one day be broken. And he specifically points to the day of Midian. The the burden of oppression will be broken as the day of Midian. What is he talking about here? What is he referring to? Well, the day of Midian refers to Judges 6 and 7. In this, these two chapters, can you guess where Israel finds herself? She finds herself being oppressed by the Midianites. The Midianites are leveraging their power to ransack Israel's lands and cattle. They're described as locusts who cover the land. As a result, The Israelites are forced to flee and live in the mountains and in the caves. And so Judges 6, verse 6 says this, And Israel was brought very low because of Midian, and the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. And so what does God do? He raises up a judge named Gideon. And he tells Gideon, through you, we will be victorious over the Midianites. And so Gideon dutifully goes around and he gathers a sizable army, 32,000 soldiers to be exact. He's feeling pretty good at his chances as he looks at the size of Midian's army. But before he can get too confident, God does something unexpected. He tells Gideon, I want you to send home 22,000 soldiers. You only need 10,000. Gideon's confidence plummets. Now he's left with one-third of his army. But before he can get too discouraged, God throws him another curveball. Gideon, actually, 10,000 is too much. I want you to send home even more. And he's left with 300 soldiers. So he goes from 32,000 soldiers to 300. That's less than 1% of where he originally started. Why does God do this? He whittles down Gideon's army so that when Israel wins, when they experience victory, every single soldier will know it's only because of God. 
God alone can explain why we have one. Now, as an aside, I wouldn't be surprised if there are a few of you here this morning who could relate to Gideon. These have been hard years, haven't they? And over these years, you you see God stripping away pillars of confidence in your life, things that you once looked to for stability and security and significance. Over the months, God is weaning you of these pillars to the point where you're wondering with Gideon, God, what in the world are you doing? Could it be that God is intentionally stripping away these pillars so that he might build your life on something better? so that he might build your life on a foundation far more significant, lasting, and fulfilling than the pillars of this world, so that God might build your life on himself. In any case, going back to Gideon's story, God does something else besides stripping his army down to 300. He tells Gideon, I actually don't want you to go into battle with sword and shield. I want you instead to carry a trumpet and a torch and an empty jar. And I want you to surround the Gideonites, I mean the Midianites, and at my signal, blow your trumpet and take your empty jars and throw them on the ground so that they crash. Gideon dutifully obeys, and to their surprise, when they blow their trumpets and throw down those jars, the Midianites wake up and are so confused that they panic and they begin to fight themselves in the dark and kill one another with their own swords, giving God's people victory. And so Isaiah points back to this day of Midian and says that God will deliver us from our oppressors the same way. Lo and behold, 700 years later, an angel appears to Mary, telling Mary, you will be the mother of the Son of God. Overwhelmed at this revelation, Mary breaks forth in song what we now know as what, what we now know as her Magnificat. And I want you to listen to what she says in this song. In verse in Luke chapter 1, verses 51 through 53, she says this. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. Do you see what she's singing about? She's talking about how God will now right the scales of justice how those who are in power will be no more, they will be humbled, and those who are humbled will be exalted. When Jesus begins his earthly ministry, when he 
starts his public uh, ministry, can you guess what was the first sermon he gave? It's what Pastor Lewis quoted earlier and led us with in the prayer of confession. Jesus quotes Isaiah, and for his inaugural sermon, he declares in Luke chapter 4, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Freedom from oppression, setting the captives free, feeding the hungry. Make no mistake, Jesus is the fulfillment of Isaiah 9. He is that Messiah who will come to break the yoke of oppression that is upon us. And yet, though this is what's announced at the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry. We are left scratching our head when we read about Jesus' life because far from being a picture of someone who conquers oppression, we read story after story of Jesus actually being oppressed. Who can forget Herod's murderous edict ordering the the murder of all Hebrew male infants in Bethlehem, forcing Jesus and his family to flee to Egypt. Who can forget the, the mockery of justice that took place as Jesus faced Pilate, as the powers that be leveraged their influence to rally up a crowd, to whisper in Pilate's ear, to lead to a guilty verdict of an innocent man. But remember, Isaiah said that our victory will be like the day of Midian. In other words, it's going to happen in a way you least expect. Like Gideon Jesus does not fight with sword and shield. Instead, we see him carrying a wooden beam across his back, a yoke. Like Gideon, he does not bring traditional weapons of warfare. Rather, he is flogged, he is beaten, he is crucified, he is crushed like the jars that were once thrown down. But little did the powers that be know that Jesus' death would be their death, that God would use the instruments of the evil one against themselves, that in Jesus' death, you have his victory. In Jesus' death, you have the beginning of the end of evil, sin, and oppression. This is how God breaks the yoke of oppression through the weakness of the only begotten Son of God. And this is why we sing. This is why the angels sung. This is why Mary sings. They saw a day where this burden would finally be released. 
Now, you might be sitting here wondering, well, Jeff, how does this apply to me? I live here in Irvine in sunny Orange County. I've got a good job. I've got a, a, a beautiful family. Last I checked, I'm not really being oppressed. Indeed, we are very blessed to not live like some of our brothers and sisters in this world. But oppression can come through many different forms. You see, the Bible speaks about how mankind is all born enslaved to sin. That we were all enslaved to our masters, to the things of this world, whether it be success, beauty, achievement, honor, reputation, the, the idol of love, all these things that we think will give us freedom ultimately end up crushing us. And Jesus' death on the cross frees us from that slavery. How many of us have tasted the oppression of addiction find ourselves enslaved to behaviors that we can't seem to overcome. A few weeks ago, I talked about how uh, living in this world means that we're not only sinners, but we're also sufferers. How many of us live under the oppression of past trauma where the wounds have been laid on our minds and our bodies so deep that we still feel its tyranny? And yet Jesus has come and will come to free us from every form of oppression, praise God. As you can see, the narrative that we find in our culture about the church being a vehicle of oppression clashes with the biblical narrative. Brian Tierney, who taught at Cornell University, part of his uh, expertise was exploring where we got this principle of human dignity, this principle that every person, regardless of social status, wealth, and ability, ought to be treated with dignity and respect. Where does this principle of universal human rights come from? So he studied the Enlightenment thinkers and realized, you know what? It's not the Enlightenment. he ultimately came down to observing that this principle of human rights was shaped and formed through the influence of the early church. Specifically, the church's teaching on Genesis, teaching that all men are created in the image of God and therefore worthy of dignity and respect, that every man, woman, and child, regardless of their skin color and social status and ability, have infinite value because they were created in God's image. That's where we get this principle of human equality from. There's a reason why Martin Luther King Jr. quotes the Bible often in his speeches and in his letters. He doesn't quote Darwin, he doesn't quote Nietzsche, he doesn't quote Marx, he quotes the Bible. Why? Because the Bible gave him the foundation and the vision for racial equality. Kyle Harper of the University of Oklahoma and 
author Tom Holland, they're experts on ancient civilizations. And both of them, and they're not even believers, came to the realization that this whole principle of, of consensual sex, this principle that sex is not allowed unless both adults consent to it, that too can be traced back to the influence of Christianity. Because you see, prior to the rise of Christianity in the, in the Roman Empire, those who were in power, those who were in power had rights to anyone underneath them. And so if you were a slave, a servant, even a child under someone's home, that homeowner had access to your body. It wasn't until the church began to speak out against this that this idea of, you know what? Everyone has a right to do with their body with what they want. That's where it comes from. And so they argue that the origins of the Me Too movement can be traced all the way back to the early church. Nicholas Kristof, again, another non-Christian, a columnist for the New York Times, once wrote about an unknown Christian doctor who ran a hospital in, in Angola, a region of the world which at that time had the lowest child mortality rate in one of the most dangerous regions of the world. He writes this, quote, most evangelicals are not, of course, following such a harrowing path. And it's also true that there are plenty of secular doctors doing heroic work. But I must say that a disproportionate share of the aid workers I've met in the wildest places over the years, long after anyone sensible had evacuated, have been evangelicals, nuns, or priests. Contrary to what our society wants you to believe, the teachings of Jesus, the teachings of Scripture, do not transform us into agents of oppression, but agents against oppression. In light of Jesus' mission, in light of God's heart for the oppressed, as Jesus' followers, we are now called to fight on the front lines, bringing relief to those who are being crushed, advocating for those who have no voice, while the world leverages its power and influence to benefit themselves. As Jesus' followers, we are called to leverage our power and influence to defend the weak and help the poor and be a voice for the voiceless. This Saturday, we have a, our bi-monthly outreach to the homeless community, which you are more than welcome to come out and bring your children to show care and compassion for those who are experiencing a, se a season of homelessness during this time. Next Sunday, we have an air mattress drive to help students in the Santa Ana Union School District who can't afford a bed and are sleeping on the floor. Of course, our ways to fight oppression are not limited to the local church. There are organizations all over the world dedicated to fighting oppression. But I hope this message helps you see that Christmas is more than just about Jesus and me. It's more than just joy to the church. 
It's joy to the world. Thankfully, this aspect is captured in one of my favorite Christmas carols, which we're going to sing, O Holy Night. The third verse of this song says this, Truly he taught us to love one another. His law is love and his gospel is peace. Chains shall he break, for the slave is our brother. And in his name all oppression shall cease. Sweet hymns of joy in grateful chorus raise we. Let all within us praise his holy name. In my message on diversity, we see how God paints a picture of all the different people from different tongues, tribes, and nations gathering before the throne of the Lamb, giving worship and homage to God. Here today, we see that part of that heavenly picture, there's going to be a substantial number of those who were oppressed and enslaved are weak and marginalized, making up a section of heaven. And I can't wait to look over there and see them sing their hearts out to the Lord. This is our God. This is our faith. This is what Jesus has done. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we thank you for giving us a fuller picture of what salvation looks like, of what Jesus came to do. We thank you, oh, Lord, that he has come to bring joy, joy to the oppressed, joy to the captives, to the prisoner, to the hungry, to the weak. And we pray, oh, Lord, that as your followers, you would help us Lord, to convey your heart to a world that is broken, to a world that is groaning under the weight of sin. So we thank you. We pray that you would help us to shine your light. And we pray this in Jesus' name.